The first event was a trial heat in the 100-meter dash. Entered in the heat with me were a German, a Frenchman, an Englishman, and two Greeks. As we stood on our marks, I was next to the Frenchman, a short, stocky man. He, at that moment, was busily engaged in pulling on a pair of white kid gloves and having some difficulty in doing so before the starting pistol. Excited as I was, I had to ask him why he wanted the gloves. Aha, he answered. That is because I run before the king. Thomas P. Curtis, High Hurdles and White Gloves. Baron Pierre de Coubertin may have focused more on the events themselves, but the Olympic Games are about the athletes just as much as they're about the sports. Anonymity and the modern Olympics are like oil and water, and while time may have left some mystery surrounding the ancient games, it's reasonable to think that the athletes back then were well-known following their appearance in Athens. In fact, we date the start of those ancient games to 776 BC because that was the first year the names of the victors were recorded, though the Olympic-type events could possibly date back even further. Korobos of Elis, the first victor, was a cook and a baker. That is, until history inscribed his name at Athens. Since then, he has always been known as the first Olympic champion. The Games of Antiquity had other notable victors, for better or for worse. In 4 BC, during the reign of Emperor Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Claudius Nero won the chariot race. Tiberius happened to be the emperor's stepson and later became the second emperor of the Roman Empire. In 65 AD, the fifth emperor, the notoriously evil Emperor Nero, competed in the games, winning chariot races, lyre playing, a herald's contest, and a tragedy competition. The 1896 Olympic Games official report, retelling the history of the ancient games, notes, The appearance of Nero in the games shows clearly both what had been the decline of the Greek spirit and how miserably the Olympic Games had fallen. Nero was not only bloodthirsty, he was also ambitious of laurels. It seems his victories had less to do with his talent than it did his 5,000 men who accompanied him to the games. The Augustan Guard was not composed of warriors but of mercenaries, whose office was to applaud Nero, the artist and actor. These guards were not armed with swords, but were all provided with Scytherin lyres and masks. Their employment was to give the signal for acclamations and applause, and to impose on the auditors and spectators of this extraordinary competitor their own ideas as to the moment to applaud and cheer. All Greece, terrified, yielded to the ambitious emperor's desire for success, and to please him, altered the time of the various games. Everywhere, spectators applauded him. His rivals let themselves be overcome or were obliged to withdraw. The Greeks exhausted their substance in order to supply the requirements of his numerous suite, and the umpires hastened to lay at his feet crowns of which his head was not worthy. Thankfully, the games of 1896 were Nero-free. Now, we don't have time to discuss each of the 241 athletes who competed in 1896, but I hope some of the stories included here will inspire you to learn more about the games and their participants. We'll start with the pride of Greece, Spyridon Louis. Louis was born in 1873 in Marusi, north of Athens and previously one of the poorest parts of Greece. His father had a business supplying mineral water to Athens. Louis was dedicated to helping his father in any way he could, which, in this business, meant carrying the water jugs to various locations whenever necessary, day or night. Some say this work primed him for the marathon, an event which wasn't on Louis's radar until Colonel Papadiamondopoulos, his former commanding officer, convinced him to run in one of the qualifying races. 
Luis placed fifth in his qualifying race, but apparently felt quite confident of his chances to win the Olympic race, as last episode's story of the marathon shows. For his first-place finish in the Olympics, Luis received a silver medal and certificate, as well as a silver cup and ancient vase. When he accepted the prizes at the award ceremony, birds adorned with ribbons of the Greek national colors were released in a stupendous display. But that wasn't all. As the story goes, the king of Greece offered the 23-year-old any gift he asked for. With endless possibilities at his fingertips, Luis asked for a donkey-drawn carriage so he'd have an easier time carrying the water jugs for his father's business. Very soon after the games, Luis returned to Marusi. He worked as a farmer and later as a police officer. On August 7, 1897, Sporting Life magazine wrote, A veil is now drawn over the racing career of the Greek who so pluckily won the marathon race at the Olympic Games held early last year. He was called out for his country's side against the Turks, and has just died from the effect of a wound received in one of the campaigns. As Mark Twain would say, the report of his death was greatly exaggerated. Spyridon Luis lived well past 1897. He even attended the 1936 Berlin Games, carrying the flag of Greece in the opening ceremony, after many years out of the limelight. He died in March 1940, seven months before Italy invaded his homeland. While he was able to go back to his pre-Olympic life after his victory, Greece wasn't. Numerous sports establishments, including the Olympic Stadium in Athens and the street leading up to it, are named after the Greeks' beloved marathon winner. As I said, anonymity and the Olympics don't mix. And that's why, with enough digging, we uncover the name James Henry Kohlfeldt a 21-year-old Princeton athlete who was on the roster for the U.S. Olympic team until his parents said he couldn't go to Athens. Their objection left Kohlfeldt benched and an open spot on the team. Team captain Robert Garrett picked Kohlfeldt's replacement, Herbert Brotherson Jameson of Peoria, Illinois. You might recognize Jameson's name from the last episode, where we learned he placed second in the 400 meter. Imagine going from second string to Olympic medalist. It might surprise the modern listener, but at the conclusion of the 1896 Games, competitors went back to their regular lives. Jameson graduated from Princeton in 1897, worked for his family's agricultural business, then started his own insurance company where he worked for the next few decades. As for Kohlfeldt, a native of Philadelphia, census records show that he eventually made his way to Europe, popping up in Paris in 1903 and Nice in 1919. He died in Cannes, France, in 1927. But due to their link to the games, their regular lives would forever have an extraordinary asterisk. In addition to the handful of Princeton athletes, the American team sent representatives from the Boston Athletic Association, which included Harvard graduate John Bryant Payne. John, the 26-year-old son of former Union Army General Charles Jackson Payne, stopped in France on the way to Athens in hopes of convincing his brother, Sumner, to compete as well. Sumner, two years older than John, was a graduate of medical school who worked as a gunsmith at the Gaston Renette Shooting Gallery in Paris. According to Sumner, The last of March, I came home to luncheon one day and found my brother, Lieutenant J.B. Payne, sitting in my office. I had not the slightest idea that he was on this side of the pond. When does the next train start for Athens, said he. I don't know, said I. Well, said he, find out and get your revolvers and we will go there, for the Boston Athletic Association, of which we are both members, has sent a team over. 
And as there are two revolver matches, we may be able to help out the Americans. The brothers packed an impressive arsenal since they had no idea what would be necessary to compete. The arsenal included several handguns and allegedly 3,500 rounds of ammo. After their excellent showing on the first day, in which John came in first and Sumner second, John sat out the next day, leaving Sumner as the sole U.S. representative. This was due to an arrangement the brothers had made prior to the competition. Whoever won gold first would sit out the rest of the pistol events. According to some sources, the arrangement was made so that the other competitors would have a chance at second place, since the brothers had beaten the rest of the field handily. The fact that both brothers stopped competing after each won a single gold medal seems to support this claim of generosity. Can you imagine if Michael Phelps withdrew from his races after winning one gold medal? In the years after the Games, John fought in the Spanish-American War and later returned to Boston, where he found great success as an investment banker. He died in 1951 at age 81. Sumner also returned to the States, where his victory in Athens proved very valuable. Mark Betchel wrote a great Sports Illustrated article back in April 2020 called Accidental Olympians. In it, he tells the story of when an Olympic medal became a get-out-of-jail-free card. On the evening of May 29, 1901, Sumner Payne entered his Chestnut Street apartment in Boston's Tony Beacon Hill neighborhood and found, to his considerable consternation, that his wife, Salome, was not alone. She was in her bedroom in the company of Peter F. Dam, a musician ostensibly on the premises, to give a violin lesson to seven-year-old Elise, who was asleep in the next room. Dam would explain his presence in the bedroom and his lack of gentlemanly attire by saying he was looking at an opera Mrs. Payne had written, and because of an open grate, the room had become unbearably stuffy. Whatever story he told in the moment didn't fly. Payne, enraged, squeezed off four shots from a 32 caliber revolver as Dam hightailed it down Walnut Street and across the common, leaving his coat and hat behind. Payne was arrested and charged with assault. Two months later, a grand jury refused to indict, based on one simple consideration. Had Payne truly meant to do harm, Dam would have been dead, for Payne was a noted marksman, as evidenced by the two shooting medals he'd been awarded at the first modern Olympic Games five years earlier in Athens. Looks like Peter was doubly lucky. Sumner didn't cap him, and neither did Peter's own wife, Alice. Less than three years later, in 1904, Sumner died from pneumonia at age 35. The whimsical nature of the Payne brothers' involvement in the games was not unique to them. Remember, this was the first modern Olympiad. It wasn't something kids dreamed about and worked toward their whole lives. For many, it just kind of fell into their laps. Take Irishman John Boland, for instance. In 1896, he was finishing up his second bachelor's degree, this time from Oxford, and had traveled to Athens to visit a friend, a Greek by the name of Manos, who was part of the Olympic Organizing Committee. Boland traveled to Athens as a fan of sports and had every intention to watch the games, not participate. But when he learned that only a few competitors signed up for lawn tennis, hence the expansion into the track and field rosters I mentioned last episode, Boland entered the competition. He knew how to play tennis and previously played casually but not competitively. But this was the Olympic Games. Why not throw a hat in the ring? Since he had come as a spectator, he had none of the necessary tennis equipment. The morning of his first match, he traveled around Athens gathering whatever gear he could find. A racket here, trousers there. He managed to find everything except shoes. So he played in his leather sole shoes, which had a small heel. 
Bolin won the singles tournament, beating the Greek-Egyptian player Dionysios Kostaglis. It was Kostaglis who suggested Bolin enter the competition to begin with, since the pool of players was so small. In doubles, Bolin teamed up with Friedrich Tron, the track and field athlete. They won gold, beating Kostaglis and his fellow Greek countryman Demetrios Petrokokinos. 20-year-old Friedrich Tron had entered the 800-meter race, but didn't make it out of the preliminary heat. In tennis, he lost to Bolin in the first round, but left Athens with a medal thanks to their doubles pairing. A year later, Tron became the first German to jump more than 6 meters in the long jump. He also graduated summa cum laude in 1899 with a Doctor of Science degree and worked at the Sorbonne as a scientist shortly thereafter. He left the lab coat for a suit and briefcase and began working for his father's rubber manufacturing company. Running, jumping, tennis, science, business, certainly a well-rounded athlete. Unfortunately, what seemed to be a successful and envious life came crashing down in 1908. In March, Tron married Friedel Pretorius, and after their honeymoon, the couple lived at the Park Hotel Teufelsbrücke in Hamburg, Germany. In July, a woman whom history has failed to identify came to the hotel claiming she was Tron's wife and would have his children. The mysterious woman and the validity of her claims might never be known, but they had major repercussions. It seems she met with Tron at the hotel that day, July 11, 1908. And while we can only speculate about the content of the meeting, we know that Tron was found dead in the apartment bathroom later that same day. He was 32. Some say the woman's claims were legitimate, and so Tron shot himself rather than face the scandal that would accompany such a story. Perhaps the tragic events of that day fit better in a true crime or cold case podcast, or maybe it's as cut and dry as it seems. That's not my focus. I'm merely telling of the rise and fall of these Olympians because they were real people who existed beyond the marble venues of the Athens Games. Their moment in the Olympic spotlight creates a snapshot of their life. I'm hoping to broaden that snapshot, be it ever so slightly. If we can relate to the characters of days gone by, if centuries ago can feel a bit more like yesterday, maybe we'll learn something from history. If we don't, we might be doomed to repeat it. I'd like to think that the Baron knew this as well that he adapted the games as he learned more about the world and its inhabitants. Since Athens was a game of firsts, any feedback had the potential to change the course of the games forever. We'll discover how flexible the Baron was as we look at later Olympiads, but one story from 1896 stands out as a learning opportunity. As I mentioned last episode, women could not compete in the games at Athens, but they could be spectators. Lest you think this went down well with every woman in 1896, let me introduce you to Stamata Rivithi, perhaps the modern Olympics' first protester, but maybe not for the reason you think. I say perhaps the first protester because the records available to us only go so far with regard to the 1896 Games, and I'm not ready to rule out other protesters the Baron and the IOC might have come up against during the Games. But Rivithi was certainly one of them. She was a 30-year-old Greek and a mother to a 17-month-old when the Games returned to Athens. Her life in poverty and the death of her seven-year-old just a few months prior to the Games aged her cruelly. With her baby in her arms, she traveled nine kilometers, or about five and a half miles, from Piraeus to Athens on foot, hoping for a better life. As the story goes, she met a young man on the road to Athens, and, after conversing and sharing her plight, the man gave her some money and suggested that she run the marathon race to gain the fortune she so desperately needed. She believed she was capable, but would she be allowed? 
In mid-March, or early March on the Julian calendar, Ravithi went to the organizing committee and requested to run the race. Allegedly, they told her that she was past the registration deadline and could not be included among the competitors. I'm skeptical of this interaction. Not that it took place, but what was said. Women were not allowed to compete in the games, so why would the committee imply Ravithi could have competed under any circumstances? And we know John Boland signed up to compete in the tennis matches only a few days before they started. Did the committee see the poor woman, child in hand, and take pity, saying, you just missed the deadline, rather than bluntly tell her, sorry, we don't allow women to compete? We probably won't ever know, and while these details are puzzling, they're minor. The committee turned Ravithi down, and rather than let that be the end of it, Ravithi took a cart from Athens to Marathon and stayed at the hotel with the official runners the night before the race. Reporters flocked to the hotel, pulled in, no doubt, by the historic event at hand. The marathon, not Ravithi. But, according to a 1997 piece by Athanasios Tarasoulias, Ravithi quickly gained popularity among the journalists and became the competitor to interview. If Tarasoulias' retelling is accurate, then the interaction between Ravithi and the reporters that night went something like this. Will you run to Athens? I will compete. If the committee does not allow me to run with the other runners, I will follow behind. How long will it take you? Three and a half hours. It may be even less. I saw in a dream that I had an apron full of gold and gilded sugared almonds. Who knows? My heart is in it. I suppose my feet will hold. A Greek runner chimed in. I'm afraid you may enter the stadium when all the spectators have gone. Don't demean us women when you men have been demeaned by the Americans. <laughs> Ultimately, Ravithi did not run with or behind the official runners on Friday morning. There were rumors circulating of at least one other woman, an American, interested in running the race. The committee convinced Ravithi not to run with the men, but promised instead they would host a run for her and a group of women in one week. The women's marathon didn't happen, but it's difficult to tell whether the committee had no intention of making the run happen at all, or if what occurred the day after the official marathon unraveled the women's race. Ravithi, determined to run, arose Saturday morning, the day after Spiridon Luis was crowned victor, and began her race, alone, from Marathon to Athens. She recorded her start time of 8 a.m. and had the mayor, the magistrate, and the schoolmaster of Marathon all sign the paper as witnesses. By 1.30, she arrived near the Rosarios Ecclesiastical School of Athens, about one kilometer from the stadium. The day prior, Luis reached the school and was hailed as a hero by the large crowd. Now, Ravithi searched for someone who could attest to her time and put it in writing. She found some officers who agreed, but were puzzled. Why did you run all that way and tire yourself? So that the king might award a position to my child. I am now going straight to Timolean Philemon to let him know how long it took me to run from Marathon and tell him that whoever wishes may come to compete with me. Despite her protest and completion of the Marathon, Ravithi became a footnote to the Games, a tall tale in Europe and an unknown in much of the world. If nothing else, Ravithi's run proved that the red tape marking who could compete in the Games was extremely hard to cut. The debate surrounding women in sports, and especially women in track and field, would continue for many years and in many ways carries on to this day. But if Ravithi didn't fully open the door to women in sports in that moment, she certainly made it budge. 
I'd be remiss if I didn't end this episode with George S. Robertson, a poster child for the Athens Games. Not literally, of course, nor was he the only memorable competitor at the Games. But Robertson certainly embodied the Olympic spirit and represented the Barons' hope for education and athletics. And he's the only competitor to leave the Games a prize winner without ever making the podium. George Stuart Robertson was born in London, England in May of 1872. A lover of Greek classics, Robertson won the Gaysford Prize for Greek verse and for Greek prose in back-to-back years while attending New College, Oxford. That might not mean much to you, but just a glance at the other winners before and after him shows he's in the company of many bigwigs of English and Irish politics, education, and law. And if nothing else, those college prizes will better explain the unique event which earned him a prize in Athens from the King of Greece. But Robertson wasn't solely an ancient Greek aficionado. He was also skilled in the hammer throw. So when he learned about the revival of the Olympic Games in Athens, it was an opportunity he wouldn't pass up. Greek classics were my proper academic field, so I could hardly resist to go at the Olympics, could I? For 11 pounds, 1,500 pounds in today's money, Robertson traveled to Athens, no doubt giddy for the history as much as the sport. But as you'll probably remember, Hammer throwing wasn't on the list of Olympic sports for the Games. Instead, Robertson signed up for the shot put and discus, perhaps thinking they fell in the same wheelhouse as the hammer throw, and like John Boland, found his way onto the tennis roster as well. Unfortunately for Robertson, the shot put competition proved more difficult than expected, as Robert Garrett and Miltiades Guskus dominated the field. His discus throw of 25.2 meters was the worst ever recorded in modern Olympic history. And his third-place finish in tennis doubles with Edwin Flack would only retroactively receive a bronze medal. Fortunately for Robertson, it was his love of the classics that would earn him a souvenir and solidify his place in Olympic history. The official report of the Games recounts a special moment in the stadium during the distribution of the prizes and closing ceremony. As soon as the king had taken his seat, Mr. Robertson, from Oxford University, advanced towards him and read an ode which he had composed for the occasion to celebrate the glory of the Olympic Games. In this ode, written in ancient Greek and Pindarian meter, the poet gave vent to the most noble sentiments, which only an ardent love and knowledge of ancient Greece could have inspired him. The king lent a most attentive ear to the recital of those beautiful verses, and the audience cheered heartily when the poet had finished speaking. For his ode to the Olympic Games and to athletic prowess, Robertson received a laurel branch from the King of Greece. He was the only competitor to not win any of the sporting events, yet still receive a prize at the Games. After the Games, Robertson became a successful barrister, appointed as King's Counsel, and received the title of Knight Bachelor in 1928 as part of the birthday honors of King George V. He died in London in 1967 at the age of 94. Sir George Robertson exhibited the love of sports, culture, and knowledge that the Baron envisioned in Olympic athletes. Sir Robertson didn't go to the Games for glory, or to crush his opponents, or even to boast in English power. And he certainly didn't do it to put his face on a box of Wheaties. His participation in the Games goes hand-in-hand with one of the Baron's most famous quotes taken from a speech in 1908. The Bishop of Pennsylvania recalled this in apt terms. In these Olympiads, the important thing is not winning, but taking part. Gentlemen, let us remember this strong statement. 
it applies to every endeavor, and can even be taken as the basis of a serene and healthy philosophy. What counts in life is not the victory, but the struggle. The essential thing is not to conquer, but to fight well. To spread these precepts is to create a more valiant, stronger humanity, one that is also more scrupulous and more generous. The Baron's words, which so eloquently encapsulated the philosophy of Olympism, inspired the IOC and, in a slightly modified form, became the Olympic Creed. The important thing in life is not the triumph, but the fight. The essential thing is not to have won, but to have fought well. As we'll learn, not everyone will see the games this way. Not everyone will value the fight over the triumph. But for now, I hope you've gotten a glimpse at those who did. At those who fought well, and due in large part to their fight, made the games a success. After all, without the athletes, there are no sports. And without the noble ideals of what sport could be and do in the world, there are no Olympic Games. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Cheney. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects and theme song are from zapsplat.com. Primary source quotes are read by Cameron Cheney. You can find him on Fiverr as Moose Gone Mad. The transcript for this episode of The Games is available at thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site or through Instagram by searching at thegamespodcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram, so be sure to follow at the Games podcast while you're there. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or review. It means a lot. Special thanks to Rebecca Brewster-Stevenson for helping edit the script and to Stephen Kratz for providing guidance on the subject matter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.